Welcome to Text Talks. Text Talks is a podcast about entrepreneurship in and around Austin at the University of Texas. Text Talks is brought to you by the Herb Kelleher Center for Entrepreneurship, Growth, and Renewal. We have a ton of great content out there already, so please check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes and go subscribe to the podcast. And you can also check us out at texttalks.info. Again, that's texttalks.info. Enjoy, Enjoy the, the show. show. Today, I'm glad to introduce Stephen Bluestein, who's joining us from Pride Bites uh, for this evening. But before we get started, I just want to thank the Herb Kelleher Center for Entrepreneurship, who has um, graciously sponsored this event and the reception that will follow. So Stephen, before we get started, I just want to give a little introduction. Cool. Uh, Stephen Bluestein is the CEO of Pride Bites Pet Products, the only company that allows you to easily design, customize, and buy one-of-a-kind pet products. Stephen focuses his efforts on finance, production, and operation. And what you might know is in 2016, Stephen and his business partner appeared on ABC Shark Tank, where they were backed by two sharks, Lori Grenier and Robert Herjavec. Stephen was also a previous recipient of the Pet Industry 40 Under 40 Award. And prior to Pride Bites, Stephen was born and raised the same city I was, Houston, Texas, just down the road, and graduated from the University of Kansas with his master's in tax. So once again, I just want to thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Stephen and I talked a couple of weeks ago, so I'm really excited with what he's going to share um, and his entrepreneurial story. Um, and at the end of uh, about 45 minutes of, of my questions, we'll open the floor. So if you have any questions, definitely jot those down. So before we get started, I want to get into background. Huh? Entrepreneurs typically had a vision from a very early age. What's your story? Have you always wanted to be an entrepreneur, or is this something that kind of came about? Yes, I've always uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was very little. Uh, most of my friends make fun of me that uh, they read children's books and watch children's shows, and uh, they make fun of me that I must have read 10K reports <laughs> or focused on finances when I was younger. So uh, it's always been a dream to start my uh, start a business, um, an international business uh, as well, and to really work across cultures and uh, challenge myself in that way. Awesome. So was Pride Bites your first business, or...? You know, lemonade stands when you were a kid or, yeah, or yeah. other businesses along the way? Uh, definitely. So uh, when I was in college, I uh, started a business with another guy called uh, doof.com, okay. uh, which was food phonetically spelled backwards. <laughs> and uh, it was before you could coupon. Uh, coupon through text messaging was like the big thing uh, when I was in college. And restaurants didn't have ability to have a platform to set the coupons ahead of time. So our platform allowed for a restaurant to set a coupon system through text messaging for about a year, a year and a half in advance. Um, so when I got into the company, um, I was hired by a local entrepreneur uh, who actually also owned a car dealership, and this was kind of his side project, and he just kind of gave me uh, the reins and said, kind of go at it. And we had about uh, 20 restaurants associated with uh, doof.com when I joined uh, when I left, actually, and uh, it's kind of funny now that I run an e-commerce business because we had quite a bit of volume. We had about 100,000 visitors a month to the website, uh, and we grew from about 20, company, 20 restaurants to about 150 and signed Marie Calendar and Subway as I was going abroad. Um, so it was pretty cool. When I went abroad and came back, actually, the entire business basically crashed uh, without my supervision. So uh, also learned a lot from that uh, whole venture and, and starting it in college as well. Yeah, it's, it's cool that you've kind of remained within the e-commerce space, so I'm mm -hmm. sure there's many lessons that you've learned, but 
one thing that we learn often is it's best to fail fast. Sure. Try something, fail fast, and learn from those failures. So mm -hmm. just a couple of things. What have you learned from either that business or others uh, in terms of your failures, and how have you grown from that? Uh, I think it's uh, to recognize the change. Uh, don't be af afraid to change. Uh, I think that's the first thing. Um, to really look inside yourself. Uh, if something's not working, uh, the first thing that you have to do is to understand whether it's you or something that's external. And I think within that business, uh, to understand really, um, was did I set it up for failure? Uh, did, did we not have the things in place that when I left, we couldn't sustain? Um, so was I not doing something correct on, on that level? And I think uh, looking at Prybytes and starting with Prybytes, actually, I think being naive at the beginning is what helped the most. Uh, and just being very optimistic and always wanting to just continue to push forward and, and kind of live that dream entrepreneurship story. And I think um, today, I think it's just trying to recognize, as you said, is um, as you fall, uh, to think ahead so that you fall in the right place and you're moving forward falling rather than falling behind. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, so you've talked about kind of starting this business in college, always wanting to be an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but I have to call you out a little bit. You mm -hmm. got your master's in tax and took uh -huh. a tax job. Uh -huh. So where was the thinking there? Uh, was there a particular reason why you chose tax or why you did take that corporate job as opposed to kind of just diving right into entrepreneurship? Sure, sure. So when I uh, started college, actually, I was an entrepreneurship major. Uh, and I remember uh, vividly, my, so my grandfather uh, started an international business. Uh, he was one of the largest importers of tools in the world. Uh, and he started it uh, when he was about 24 years old. He went to uh, Japan and got a loan for the Bank of Japan for about a million bucks, so to speak, today. Uh, as a 24-year-old uh, young guy without speaking any of the language or really understanding what it was like to go overseas at that time. And I think um, that understanding of kind of how he did it, I remember calling him because um, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was really little. And I called him and said, uh, you know, I'm going to start a business and uh, I'm thinking about studying entrepreneurship in college. I think it will really help me. And I didn't like hear anything on the other line. <laughs> and so I like waited a second and he just paused and he said to me, if I really wanted to know how to run a business, I should learn the language of business. So I should study accounting. Uh, when I got into accounting, I actually fell in love with my tax professor, who's not easy to fall in love with. <laughs> Uh, he taught tax by Socratic method, which is um, very interesting because most people need to see numbers on the board and need to write and uh, very inquisitive. And when you sat uh, in his classroom, he often called you out and made you be ultra prepared. And I think um, really studying tax allowed me to go through what it was like for really intense study sessions and really intense classroom sessions where it prepared me for the ups and downs of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and to always be prepared. I think uh, one thing that you'll hear from me that I speak to my team about is, um, you know, we're a young team. I'm the oldest uh, out of our group. And uh, when we walk into a meeting with somebody else, I always want us to be more prepared than that person sitting on the other side of the table. Um, and I think the only way you can do that is really doing your homework. And I think uh, when you hear my story about Shark Tank, um, that will kind of resonate as well if you um, take anything away from, from today. It's that, you know, hard work and preparation is really what is the key and separates everything. Yeah, definitely. And I know that we've talked about the Shark Tank uh -huh. thing. I know probably many of you are eager to hear about that experience. Uh -huh. So we'll definitely dive into that. Um, but just backtracking a little bit. Um, so after your master's in tax, you mm -hmm. did take a tax job. Mm -hmm. um, so can you take us back to what you're thinking then? Uh, for many of us in the room who want to be entrepreneurs, we do take those jobs. Mm -hmm. So what advice when we're sitting in that chair um, do you have or what did you learn from that experience? And then, you know, when did you decide to make the move and actually pursue entrepreneurship full time? Yeah, so I think 
Um, taking the tax job is good because I think uh, in entrepreneurship, you're often doing things that uh, you don't want to be doing. Everything's, everyone thinks it's a glamorous lifestyle and uh, you just like, jump right in, raise all this money and then become Facebook like the next day. And um, it's not quite like that. And I think uh, getting into tax, uh, I got to my office every day at 6.30. I would work, I was the first hire they had, I think, the youngest hire they ever had. And the other, other person that was close to my age was probably 15 or 20 years older than I was. Probably the first I ever hired this, this uh, one firm I ever hired out of, uh, out of college directly. And um, I got into my desk at 6.30. I would work a full day of tax work. I would leave the office probably around 8.30 at night. Um, I would go home. I'd work out for about an hour, and I'd start Pride Bites until about 3 in the morning. And um, I remember uh, towards the end of it that uh, around 3 in the morning, I would get tax returns from my boss uh, saying, like, this needs to be on my desk at 8.30 a.m. And uh, it really taught me to really push myself during those uncomfortable moments. And I think a lot of times today I hear um, people who want to start a business come to me and say, well, I'm just going to quit my job and do it. And I often say, like, have you really pushed yourself? Have you done everything that it takes to start the business now while you're at your current job? Um, you know, maybe I was started the business too early. Maybe I should have stuck it out and continued to be a tax accountant and not quit when I only had one product and one SKU. Right? Uh, I think you know, things worked out in my favor and things worked out, luckily, in the right place. But I think ultimately what I learned from that tax job is you have to do a lot of things that are uncomfortable to get started uh, with entrepreneurship. And if you're not uncomfortable, you're probably not doing the right thing. Because it's often that uh, desire to make that dollar last the longest and that cash flow management what keeps you in business the longest at the end of the day. And I think I learned that a lot from being uncomfortable in that tax role and just kind of running on little hours of sleep and these things to get to where I was. Yeah, that's great. And I think there's probably a few of us who are moonlighting uh, our own businesses <laughs> while we're in school full time. I know everyone's from uh, different programs within McCombs and otherwise, but uh, there's probably many people in here who are currently starting businesses. So I think that's great advice. Um, so you've kind of spoken a little bit about the early days of Pride Bites. Mm -hmm. So where did the idea originally come from? Was it your idea? Was it your business partner's idea? Can you take us back to there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we started in our college apartment at the University of Kansas. Uh, it was not my idea at all. Uh, I was getting my master's in tax, and I had my last class was corporate tax. Uh, so my schedule was pretty light, and I was doing some stuff on the side and trying to think uh, of different ventures that I could get into. Um, my one business partner came to me and uh, presented the idea of making better pet products. Uh, at the same time, I had met uh, a young guy uh, at the rec center at KU who was a Chinese uh, uh, foreign exchange student uh, who came to study international business and get his master in international business at Kansas. And he said to me, uh, I, I remember the conversation in the gym, he was asking me something and then he said, I, I don't think I've met anybody at Kansas who's really interested in business. And uh, if you ever say that to me, you, you're gonna be going to lunch with me pretty quickly. Uh, so, you know, we quickly found each other at lunch uh, after that, kind of thinking of different ideas. And at that time, Beijing Olympics had just happened. Um, so, like, fireworks were, like, the huge thing coming off of Beijing Olympics. So he was, like, trying to get me to import fireworks and all these other things and wood-crafted objects. And I was like, I don't know what to do with any of that kind of stuff. Let's kind of table our discussions and let's see what comes up. And uh, my other business partner came to me with the idea of making pet products. And when I looked at the industry, uh, it started to be explosive. It was like, at that point, I think it was like 15% growth year over year. And um, other uh, world markets were growing equally as fast. And there was a very low barrier to entry. And it seemed like the people in the business basically had sewn two socks together and came up with a product. 
So um, kind of piecing the things together in the early days, we thought that we could leverage you know, the connections overseas and uh, kind of this idea of making better prep products and um, formulate something that could be you know, a viable product. Yeah, so you mentioned a little bit earlier that you started with one item, mm -hmm. one pet product. Mm -hmm. How'd you know it was gonna work? How'd you test it? Um, because I think there's a lot of people who maybe have always wanted better pet products or better dog toys, et cetera, um, but they haven't tested it. So how did you guys go about that? Yeah, so we, uh, I came up with a design just by drawing it on a piece of paper. Uh, we saw other things in the market. We saw a bunch of cotton products uh, that were stuff, cotton stuff products, and we just said to each other, like, there, there should be something better. Cotton is not necessarily good for dogs. If ingested, it actually could wrap around their organs and really harm them. So we went off this whole idea of using foam. Uh, at the beginning, we went through 40 different prototypes in a year and a half. Um, it was really slow getting product back from the factory and for them to send samples back. And so I remember vividly waiting in my college apartment with my other buddies, basically, when the, the toys would come and be like, oh, we'd give it to my dog and my dog would rip it up like in half a second. And like, ah, no, like all this product research is gone. Like, you know, did anybody get it on tape? And at that time, you know, you were still having flip phones and these types of things. So uh, we went through that a lot and uh, we didn't know much about the market. Uh, when we had our one product, we started, uh, we got with college licenses and started with college licenses. And so we went out and we created, the first product ever was a USC Trojan Pride Bite. Uh, and it was our dog toy, which is this foam stuffed dog toy with a fleece, outside fleece that's real durable. Um, it's a great interactive toy. It's great for swimming and playing indoors and uh, just a great product overall. But at that time, it was really expensive to make one. Um, so we were selling it, I think, for like $20 a toy. And we were going to USC tailgates uh, on Saturdays when majority of the audience was uh, probably not even there to begin with, so we were pitching a bunch of drunk people, basically, uh, getting them to buy $20 <laughs> dog toys. Right. Uh, and the reason why we knew that it was something that was interesting is we would sell one week, we'd come back, and everybody would know us at the tailgate as, like, the Pride Bites guys, and, like, go get the dog toys from the Pride Bites guys. And at that point, you know, maybe it was, like, I, I keep saying, you know, ignorance, or maybe me being naive, or us being naive, but... You know, we, we felt like there was more to the market and that uh, the product had legs at that point, uh, even though we had one SKU. Yeah, so you, you start with kind of the licensed products, mm -hmm. but now for those who might not be as familiar, can you take us through kind of where Pride Bites is at today in mm -hmm. terms of the customization and kind of what led to that, that change? Yeah, absolutely. So today we customize and design pet products not only for uh, direct consumer on our e-commerce site, but also through wholesale businesses as well. And the evolution came about by, uh, went from licensed products and licensed dog toys to seeing that that market was kind of limited. It was too much of a niche market. You have to produce uh, for a lot of universities, but you may not have a lot of sales across all universities. Um, into saying that, okay, we should make just dog toys in general. When we launched with dog toys in general, we won best dog toy of the year in the pet space. Um, about two months actually, we were a real company launched in the market. Um, at that point, we just kind of used brute force and um, developed a line of dog toys and got into as many stores as possible, really not really understanding servicing the stores or any marketing agenda behind our product or anything like that. And then when we were in this space, I think uh, very early on, somebody asked us to customize one of the toys. At that point, it was like a light bulb went off to say, hey, I think there's a bigger market here. Uh, Nike ID had started uh, around the same time, and uh, Timbuktu, which was in the luggage and baggage industry, and they were customizing products for humans. And we kept saying, like, 
if customizing products for humans work, for sure customizing products for your dog is gonna work because everybody loves their dog way more than we like each other, I think. So uh, it should work, for sure. Um, at the same time, I think it was matching the capability. You know, in China and overseas manufacturing in general, retention manufacturing is what's in, right? If you can't produce 100,000 of something, you're not doing something right. And if you're Nike, it's very easy to take your production facilities and carve out a line that makes one. Uh, but when you're a startup that's trying to go overseas to convince these retention manufacturers who really have been doing the same thing for about 7,500 years, right, um, to do it differently, um, it, it takes a lot. And it takes a lot of conviction and it takes a lot of courage, I think, to go to convince them to do that. And um, understanding where the market was headed, um, you know, our vision is, is that one day when you walk into a store, you won't buy the same thing as anybody else. You'll still buy something that's completely unique to you. And I think that trend is emerging uh, faster and faster every single day. Um, but I think when we were at that point uh, making that transition, um, it felt kind of natural that that was where it was going. At the time, uh, we transitioned from LA to Austin and um, got into an accelerator uh, here in Austin. At the time, it was called Incubation Station, and now it's called SKU. Mm -hmm. And uh, we met some amazing mentors there who really helped craft the vision from going from a dog toy to really a line of custom products that we could sell both through e-commerce and through wholesale. Yeah, and so one thing that I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, I personally struggle with, is you have this vision, whether you came up with it in the middle of the night or a business partner came to you with it, and you feel very tied to it. Mm -hmm. So was there ever a part of you that felt so tied to the licensed product, so mm -hmm. tied to your early stage, um, that maybe hindered or slowed you down from making this pivot? Or was it kind of, we see this opportunity, let's you know take advantage? Yeah, I, I, I think there's always um, something that holds you back from pivoting, right? Or something that holds you back from moving into a market that's actually better than the market that you're in. Um, and I think from, uh, from our case, it still happens today, right? We, we probably, any business I think at this point could probably be farther along if they would have recognized things ahead of time, right? And I think it's, as you said, it's just making sure you, you, when you're falling, you're falling forward. And that the mistakes that you make or the things that you're looking for, you're able to advance yourself rather than hold yourself back. Uh, in the case from moving from licensed product uh, into general market, the market was just way bigger. So it just made sense to move there. Um, to move into the customization, especially before the industry was there, um, it definitely took a lot of guts, I think, to, to jump to that form. Um, but it makes sense, right? I think when, when things make sense uh, or you see a natural opportunity in the market for it, uh, in our case, we saw this massive blue ocean that was there, right? There was nobody in the space uh, trying it. And whether it was because uh, they knew something that we didn't or, or lack thereof, um, you know, I think it allowed us to move in that space with a lot of confidence because we were the first. Yeah. And, and so I know, you know, with licensing, there's already roadblocks and challenges that you face face with just getting the licensings. Mm -hmm. um, but with customization, there's even more challenges mm -hmm. that you face um, just in terms of your supply chain. Mm -hmm. So can you give us kind of an overview, the good and the bad uh -huh. of, of your, your supply chain, your mm -hmm. company, um, but also just working with an international supply chain? I think mm -hmm. many of us are, we hear about it, we, we uh, read about international supply chains, mm -hmm. but we haven't really worked um, for many of us in the nitty gritty details of it. So if you could just share some of that with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, culturally it's just, different, right? I mean, you're working with a very different culture. Um, I was telling Lexi that uh, about three years ago, I was tired of being in meetings where I didn't understand anything that was going on, so I learned Chinese. And I, I think understanding the culture of, uh, the Chinese culture is super, super important to um, doing business there and doing business ab abroad in general. So 
uh, my first recommendation if you're going to do or operate an international supply chain is really understand the culture as, as best as possible. And um, you know, one of the most exciting things for me when I take anybody to China with me is for them to see what I know about the culture. Because oftentimes I think that I'm more Chinese than somebody who's actually Chinese. Uh, and when people see me interact within the culture, I think that they can they recognize that, I think. And, and that, that attribute is a big thing that allows it to go a lot more or a lot longer. Uh, in Chinese, they talk about the relationship as something that's called guangxi. And guangxi is like um, this unspoken uh, something that's in between you, a bond between you and somebody else that you have a relationship with. And oftentimes it goes a lot farther than maybe a business connection or anything else that you can have. Um, and so managing, I think the first thing that's the most difficult thing in managing the international supply chain is the personalities involved, the culture that's involved, um, the different dynamics in between. When you're a startup, you know, you, you're pulling from cash from all different types of places. And uh, over there, and, or just in general, with this international supply chain, you know, cash is king. Um, so I think you're always trying to work within it and trying to kind of get the most out of that international supply chain as much as possible. Um, I would say that communicating with them on their level, right? And communicating on the level that works within that culture. Um, for me, uh, we, we communicate with our factories through WeChat. And WeChat is what everybody uses uh, primarily in Asia to communicate. And so many times I think people on my team have asked me, like, why can't we just use this? Why do we use Slack for everything? Why can't we just use Slack? Why can't we just teach them Slack? And I think that's what's most important is, is um, again, understanding the culture, what the culture needs are, and adapting that culture needs across the different uh, platforms or across the company in general really helps the company go smooth. Um, in general, I think it's extremely challenging to run an international supply chain because at any time, something can go wrong. And uh, I can't tell you how many people I've met that have been on Alibaba who have looked for a supplier and have ordered something. And then when they order it, half of it comes bad, and they want our help to try to fix the problem. Uh, and whenever you even have, we have two people on the ground in China and really good connections, and it's still very challenging. And my team can tell you that, right? And um, I think that managing people's expectations and managing um, the relationships between the two sides is something that um, people often um, don't focus on enough. Yeah, and in case anyone missed it, he said it very quickly, but he's learning Chinese, which I think should not go understated. Uh. Um, I think that's um, putting business first, and I think that's really remarkable you. um, that you're really investing in that. Um, that said, have you ever thought of bringing the operations back, or have you ever kind of dealt with so many day-to-day -day issues or challenges that it you know, feels like it would be easier to bring it back? Yeah, I think, uh, as you said, I think, you know, whenever things get hard, it's always, you always think about other ways to change it. Um, you know, after assessing it many times, uh, we'd love to do what we do here. I think the complexity of manufacturing at this point uh, is better suited for where we are. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would love to uh, create more jobs in America and have facilities here and to be able to operate here. And I think one day, um, we might be able to do it with how the economies are changing currently uh, and maybe with the way that manufacturing could be coming back to the states. Um, but I think at this point, uh, it's more important for the, you know, for, for the supply chain to work correctly uh, than to, for us to worry whether or not uh, what location it should be in uh, or vice versa. We, you know, we, we're a big fan of uh, international business and having uh, offices all over and having people from different cultures. And I think that also adds a lot of value to what we do.
Yeah, that's 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 great, and I think um, you know a lot of us when we're creating business plans, we have this vision of of sub international supply chain. So I think it's great just to hear your perspective on not only the good and the positives that have come from it, but also some of the challenges. Sure. Um, something that we talked about when we chatted a couple weeks ago, um, and I want to make sure uh, you're able to kind of tell your story as it relates to this, is working with friends. Mm -hmm. You briefly alluded to starting this with friends in your dorm um, in college, and, and you've run another business in college. But I'm just curious. Um, what that looks like kind of on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. and um, kind of what, what's come of doing business with your friends? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, uh, so I think working with your friends is an amazing experience uh, in general, and it's a large challenge, right? It's a large challenge when there's obstacles to be able to confront a friend and to be able to tell a friend whether or not uh, what role they're in or what role you're in with that friend, right? And I think um, the one thing that we do is we're brutally honest, and I think you have to be that way when you work with friends. And um, everybody who's a part of it has to accept uh, any changes that are going through for the greater good of the business. And uh, no matter what happens at the end of the day, uh, you know, my, my friends that I've been in this with, we've been, you know, best friends since we were real, real little. And I think what's uh, always the first thing is that the business comes first. And as long as that you put the business first at the end of the day, I think that naturally you always make the best decisions, um, no matter what it is. And I have... Um, you know, a lot of confidence in the fact and a lot of support from my friends, from my co-business partners, that um, if I make a decision or if they make a decision, um, that we trust each other and that we stand by what those decisions are. Uh, but it's for sure a challenge. Um, you know, you have to worry about the complexities of past relationships um, and knowing more about that person than maybe you would about another employee. And so maybe you're doing things to sacrifice uh, what you should be doing in order to support them in certain ways. And I think it goes back to always, you know, continuing to reflect and to make sure that you're making the best decision on behalf of the business. Uh, and that, you know, at the end of the day, that's what's most important. Yeah, and I think that's something that we come across pretty often. Mm. Uh, many of us who are interested in entrepreneurship, we're taking classes with our friends um, and thinking of business ideas kind of at the bar or in class. Um, and so I think that, you know, you're constantly around your friends and you're pitching ideas off of each other. And so, um, you know, there's obviously the benefit of getting the chance to work with your friends every day. Sure. Um, but there's also things to kind of take into account. So I think your your advice on just being brutally honest mm -hmm. and putting the business first, I think, um, is something that's probably true of many family businesses, but mm -hmm. also uh, many founders who are also friends. So I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a long road, you know, and I think uh, when you start naturally, you're super optimistic. You know, we were we probably didn't have the same advantage of, that you all have, right? We wanted to start a business because we wanted to start a business. You know, that was like what we wanted to do since we were young. We were gonna do whatever it took to get that business started, no matter what. So, you know, there's, there's so many times where we thought it was only gonna take a, two years or one year or whatever it was, and it was a lot longer than you're expecting, and everyone's seen the picture where it's like, this is success, and it's going up and down all the way to, to final road of success. And I think uh, it takes that, and it takes, um, you know, constant encouragement and it, it takes you coming back to earth and saying, you know, where are you at right now, where we're headed. And um, I think that you can never, you, you can't do that enough when you're working with friends, right? You can't put it in perspective enough. And uh, it's a long, it's a long journey and you just got to stay with it, you know? Yeah. So I, I think the themes, at least that I'm drawing from this is persistence, putting the business first, um, being willing to pivot, 
um, kind of working really hard, but another huge piece of starting a business is raising money. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. I, I do want to make that, uh -huh, that uh -huh. transition into raising money. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, I want to talk uh, more generally first about kind of setting up, and um, I, I'm willing to bet that Shark Tank wasn't your first time asking someone else for money. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So I want to know just kind of early days of Pride Bites, uh, how were you funded? Uh, how did you go about getting your initial capital and then maybe some other um, pitches that you've done since then? Uh, the initial capital at the very beginning came from uh, friends, uh, just asking random friends to back you, um, whatever it is. And you know, oftentimes I think that entrepreneurs want to go for like a Series A immediately or something like this. And I actually encourage them to raise money from your friends. Um, because I think when you take money from your friends, you often, then you're on the hot seat, right? Then you, you really have to start thinking about what you're doing and who you're justifying the money from, right? And um, so that was the, the kind of the first rounds was a kind of a friends and family, so to speak, to kind of get us started, uh, test the market. And then um, we, uh, when we moved here, we got in SKU Incubation Station. And um, we kind of broke the format to the Incubation Station uh, Accelerator format. They kind of wanted us to operate, I think, in this box of how the rest of um, each track was going. And uh, we got in and kind of were a little bit different. Uh, Probably they would start laughing at that if I said that to them. Um, but we wanted to raise money immediately. My whole thought was I'm getting this accelerator. Like The reason why I'm doing it is because I think this is a good old boys club in this town. And the only way that I can break in is through this accelerator. So I'm going to do it. I don't know anybody in this town. So this is my out. And um, sure enough, we, we met a lot of great people, actually amazing people uh, in the accelerator. And um, not only that, but it motivates you to do so much more, right? And that's where our first money came from was from um, after we went through pitch day at the accelerator, um, we kind of got some momentum. And from that momentum, you start getting one person who's kind of an advocate for you. And that one person kind of goes to bat and kind of introduces you to other people. And then you, once you have that one domino that kind of pushes you forward, it's amazing how fast the round fills up because everybody wants to do what everybody else is doing, right? All the cool kids are doing. So um, that was kind of our first experience. You know, we didn't, um, we didn't have any coaching on how much money to raise. Um, we didn't raise enough. We didn't do it the right way. Uh, you know, my feeling was is if I took money in, I wanted to be able to get when I, whatever I got out of it was a better story than what we went in with it. So it would allow us to then raise more money. Well, most people don't do it that way. They would raise a big tranche of cash. They would understand their burn rate. They would understand really where their money is being invested. And then they would come out and say, okay, while this, I only have X amount of burn left, I'm then going to raise X amount more dollars. And um, we didn't really do that. Uh, and I think part of that, again, that ignorance, maybe being more naive at the beginning actually helped us probably preserve more equity than we would have had, had we have gone the other way. And I think luckily, you know, we continued to work hard through that process. So we kind of understood that a little bit more. Uh, so we raised our first uh, 300,000 to kind of prove customization. And we did. We raised the money. We launched this website. Uh, we had a lot of initial traction. I think the first uh, Christmas time that we went through uh, was 2015, which was pretty successful for us, uh, or 2014, which was pretty successful for us. And then um, we kind of waited that out, that next tranche, or used up that money, that next tranche, in order to go as far as we possibly could. Uh, luckily, that next phase of what was happening was when we started kind of entering Shark Tank, 
uh, and uh, that whole part of the story. I don't know if I yeah, should so stop that, here or that's not. Yeah, definitely but. my next question. So <laughs> take it away. Uh, yeah. Definitely want to hear kind of how you, how it came to be. Was it, you know, you saw other companies on there? I know it's in the news, right? We see many people in this room likely watch Shark Tank, but we see kind of the big ones that get a lot of money. And uh, most recently, the, the Ring doorbell, which got bought yeah. out. So um, we're, we're seeing a lot of press on on Shark Tank. And I think that uh, when we spoke earlier, there's the value and not only it being a pitch, but the mm. other value that you found in it as well. So if you wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before, uh, actually, my business partner really wanted us to go on Shark Tank. Uh, my business partner, Sean, should get all the credit in the world for it. So, Sean, if you're watching this, please know this. Uh, he really pushed me uh, every day. I didn't want to go on. Um, since I was little, I was in this uh, youth group, actually, where I know Lexi and her family. And I'd always been pitching, so to speak. I've always been presenting in front of people. I've always felt very comfortable in front of an audience. And um, I don't know why. I didn't want to go on Shark Tank. I thought, like... <laughs> It, whether it was something like this was a big stage, this was too big of a stage or whatever it was, I was just reluctant. Uh, not to mention the application is the worst business plan <laughs> I've ever had to put together in my life. It's like 50 pages and it's, it's very daunting just to do the Shark Tank business plan. So maybe if you're starting a business and you want to see whether you got it or not, just go fill out the Shark Tank uh, application and see whether or not you really want to start your business afterwards. Um, <laughs> maybe it would turn you away. Uh, so we did it twice. Uh, we applied twice, and uh, we didn't hear anything. And then uh, at some point, like over the summer or something, uh, my business partner got a call from one of the producers that said, like, hey, uh, we've seen you guys apply a couple times, and uh, we really like your story, um, but we think you're flat. We don't think you have a lot of personality, and uh, we don't know if you have it for, you know, have enough to get on Shark Tank. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny, because uh, if anyone knows me, I'm like certainly not flat, and I have a big personality, uh, and my business partner probably has a bigger personality than I do, so uh, I, we flew out to LA immediately and uh, started to re-practice our pitch, and uh, we had a ridiculous video. I remember at one point, my business partner was in the shower with his bathing his dog in a bathtub, uh, and so we just like made it as ridiculous as we could uh, to really show who we were as people. And uh, afterwards, we got a call back from the producer. Uh, and they said, uh, you know, we're, we, we saw you guys. You know, there's, uh, I think there was like 60,000 applicants. And uh, we're narrowing it down to maybe 1,000 at this point. I forgot what the numbers were. Um, and so, like, here's your initial call that, like, we're interested for you guys to be on Shark Tank. Uh, at that point, um, I didn't realize it, but it was probably like 18 or 20 more checkpoints from that conversation I had until the time that you're actually, like, through and you film for the show and you're going to be on the show. Um, so the, the process from start to finish is like about 18 months from the time we started. And um, up until really the day before we had pitched the uh, producers in general, we didn't really know that we were going to be on. You know, they invite you out to LA uh, and they don't really tell you much. They kind of just, uh, you go through like kind of weeks, it's, it's a kind of a weekly call with a producer. Uh, and you kind of go through these checkpoints, and each one of those are kind of checkpoints that you're checking in within to make sure that you're moving along well. And then uh, they invite you out to LA, and they don't really say anything to you. So at that point, though, we had an understanding that if you got invited to LA, there's probably a good chance that you're going to pitch for Shark Tank. So my business partner and I, we watched every episode of Shark Tank pretty much, and we wrote down every question to every single episode that there was, and we broke them down by shark, and we just 
really tried to understand the mindset of where these questions were coming from and the type of people these, the, that were asking the questions. Uh, and then also our pitch, obviously. We practiced our pitch uh, you know, nearly 150 times before we actually were on the show. So um, we would leave the office. We really, really wouldn't tell anybody that we were going on the show. And there's an office of like five, six people. So like, you know, it's all, all obviously very weird when I'm walking outside like constantly. And uh, I would FaceTime my business partner, Sean, and we would practice our pitch. And then he'd get to ask me the questions and I'd get to ask him the questions. And we'd do that a couple times a day. And uh, lo and behold, we got the call to uh, head out to California. And uh, in addition to that, we had some additional prep. Uh, my business partner's wife is a two-time Emmy-winning producer for Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, so that helps a little bit in terms of getting ready for being on Shark Tank. Uh, so she helped us kind of uh, be more mindful of how to be on TV, where to put your hands, what to do when you're speaking, um, how to not look dumb if they're you know, maybe getting you in a weird look or something. And uh, that really helped before because it helps us really calm our nerves down. So we went in that day, uh, the day before we actually filmed, and it was a pitch to the producers. That's the first thing you do when you get to the Shark Tank uh, filming. And everybody that goes through, usually the producers, all of them are in the room, there's like 30 of them. And you're in a hangar, and you have like your little setup there. And there's like so much commotion going on, and they typically ask a ton of questions or say, this is what you should be doing or not be doing. And so we gave our pitch, and they had no notes for us. They had zero notes. So I was thinking to myself, like, okay, this is pretty good. This must be pretty good. If we have no notes, uh, then you know, they must think highly of us. And we had heard this buzz around filming in the morning versus the afternoon. And everyone said you wanted to film in the morning because the sharks uh, were up, they were ready to go, they were more lively. At the end of the day or after they ate lunch, they basically were more lethargic, maybe even harder on you. So the goal was to get the morning. Well, as soon as we filmed and we didn't have any notes, I just assumed we were going to be in the morning, uh, but you didn't know. So we went back to our room or, you know, everybody else was probably really excited to be in L.A. I, we had, I had moved from L.A. to Austin. My business partner was still living in L.A., so we didn't care. So we just went back to the hotel room and kept practicing our pitch literally every five seconds. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny that um, during the pitch, we would stand literally like an inch from each other's face. And we would scream the pitch at each other. And when we were in the pitch, and my business partner, he would throw his hands up in the air, like when I was pitching, to try to throw me off uh, going through that process. So we were trying to really get in there to, to not being affected by anything that could go on. So we, sure enough, around like 5 o'clock, we got the call that said, like, hey, you're going to be in the morning group. Um, so get ready to go. We need you, in the, uh, you know, downstairs at 5 a.m. or whatnot and um, be ready for the day. Uh, so we like go through and um, go through kind of the pitch and I'll kind of fast forward. We get you know mic'd up. We they take us to the scene. We see Mark Cuban for the first time. Everyone's all excited. And uh, so now it's like our turn. Uh, we we come out and we hit the doors. You know the doors are like what everybody knows. The doors open. We go down this hallway. You have all the shark tanks on the side of the hallway or the fish tanks. Uh, and so before the doors open. Uh, both of us look at each other, and we were so confident. We were so good. You know, we had practiced so many times. And at that point, uh, my business partner looks at me and goes, oh, my god, I forgot my lines. And I look at him like, oh, my god, is it seeking or asking? Is it seeking or asking? 
And we kept hearing these producers. We went to dinner with our producers afterwards that night. But we kept hearing these producers run around and be baklava, baklava, baklava. We didn't know what they were saying. I just thought someone was hungry or something, you know? And later that night, I found out that baklava was the code name for uh, entrepreneurs freaking out. So <laughs> please start filming more right now, you know? So like, we had more and more cameras on us, and I couldn't figure out why there were so many cameras on us. Um, but it worked out, you know? And, uh, Getting into Shark Tank, um, for me, was probably like the most real experience of my life because uh, you know, you've been pitching since day one uh, to anybody that will listen to you. And here's the biggest stage. You know, here's this show that has glorified entrepreneurship and has glorified the pitch. And so if you can beat these guys or if you can win against these guys, right, then you should be able to win in, in life, right? And so you walk down that hallway, and the only thing I was thinking, I just had the biggest smile on my face the whole time, because I was like, I'm, I'm finally here. Like, I have this moment in front of me, and like, I'm ready for this, you know? And uh, I think at, at that point, you know, the lines I wasn't really thinking about, you get out, and you stand on these X's, and of course, there's no music, right? So you get like 45 seconds to start. So we had enough time to like kind of take some deep breaths and really gather ourselves, and that those, were, those moments were really, really helpful, because it allowed us to gain composure and to kind of feel the room out and to realize that, these people are just people, you know, in front of you. Uh, you know, and then, then it's just like 45 seconds and then go, go time, right? And you just start your pitch. And um, it was about 45 minutes. And it, I just, you know, when I was finished, I couldn't remember a time where I thought it went poorly. So I really didn't know how they were going to spin it to make us kind of look bad, right? And it was rapid fire. And um, I think that was the best thing about it is that um, they were asking so many questions so quickly that you could pick who you wanted to respond to. And they're all kind of arguing with each other about who gets, the, who gets to ask the question and whatnot. And of course, you know, Cuban is kind of the lead in this whole scenario. And uh, definitely the smartest person I've ever been in the room with, who I've pitched with. He, I think he picked us apart within maybe a second of what we were doing. And um, it just was kind of like played out through the scene. And we had, you know, kind of Robert uh, came in really early, which they didn't show on TV. They kind of show it dragging out a little bit. So we had some confidence. We had a deal on the table already. And it kind of worked through this whole thing where it was able to go kind of shark by shark. And uh, at one point, I thought we would have three sharks in the, the deal at one time. Uh, and then it quickly became two. And then, you know, it was over. And then, you know, about uh, they take you back to this your room. And uh, they come in with these agreements and whatnot. And you say, you know, I want to wait till my lawyers are here. And... Uh, everything else like that. And uh, then about like, you know, 30 minutes later, I'm sitting on my friend's couch, like as if nothing happened, you know, and you can't tell a soul. And so we're sitting here like, <laughs> oh my God, like we, like we don't even know what we're doing right now, you know? And then like the wait is on. So you're like, um, you know, we get back and you're negotiating with the, the sharks, but uh, our deal started negotiating and about six months after that, it, it kind of died down. There was not really a conclusion. There was a lot of intense negotiation and then like, kind of just kind of came to a standstill. And you don't, we didn't hear anything for like a couple months. So you know, here we are like 10 months in, and uh, you have no idea. So you just film. You're not allowed to talk about it with anybody. You don't hear anything from the producers. At this time, we didn't hear anything more from the sharks. And so we didn't know if even we were going to air. You know, there's so many companies, and you still hear that after you film, you may not still be on the show. So. Um, it's actually uh, almost two years to the day. Uh, today was two years to the day that we actually found out that we announced it to everybody that we were going to be going on Shark Tank. Um, but I was standing in line. It was uh, South by Southwest. I was with my wife, Kelly. 
And uh, we were waiting in line for a Third Eye Blind concert at uh, Whole Foods, on top of Whole Foods. Mm. And I was standing there, and uh, she could probably can attest, it ran my life. Like every single morning, I'm wondering if we're going to get in Shark Tank because the question that led into this was raising money. You know, at that point, we had raised only $300,000. And so we had $3,000 left in our bank account. And we had prepared as if we were going to be on Shark Tank because what are you going to do? You're going to not prepare after you go through that experience and you think everything was awesome. So we were sweating. And I was looking at my bank account thinking, okay, when it comes to Monday, we don't have enough money to pay payroll. And I don't know what we're going to do. We're basically going to close down and or I'm going to come, you know, basically me and my co-founders will be just a, a couple man operation and see if we can do this together and make it work. And then randomly I looked down at my phone and I got this email uh, that said, uh, we congratulate you. Uh, you're going to be airing on Shark Tank on April 8th. Uh, at that moment, I think I was like overcome. You know, I think it was like so many emotions from going on and pitching that day and having such a great day to not hearing anything to, you know, everything that you get wrapped up with within Shark Tank. And in about 72 hours, we raised about three quarters of a million dollars. And it really saved the business. And I think um, from what I learned from Shark Tank is just the clout of Shark Tank is so much. And um, even before you even get on the show or what a shark could do to you, um, just the name of the show in general validates a, a brand or a company so much nowadays because of what the show has become. And at that point, I realized this rocket ship of what Shark Tank uh, is to a brand. Uh, and it really changed us completely. Uh, everyone asked me about the Shark Tank experience and what it's like. Uh, and I'd say if you have the ability to apply or to get on Shark Tank, do it. Um, there's not a single ounce of me that wouldn't do it again. And even if it, there's a chance where you may get picked apart, um, do it in a way that's fun, uh, exactly like the Ring guys did, and maybe be purchased by Amazon for a billion dollars. Who knows, right? <laughs> uh, so I think there's uh, other ways to do it. Um, however, I also think when going back to asking the question about raising money is raise it with the best story. You know, you always want to raise money when your story is at the best moment possible. And if you don't need money, that's one thing. And if your business is, is, is growing out of control without the need of raising cash, don't do it, right? But if you're going to have a moment where you're really on top of the world, take advantage of it. And I think that's what you know, kind of I learned through that Shark Tank process. And uh, lo and behold, after we got on the night we actually aired, I actually got a text message from Lori that said, hey, I, I want to come back to negotiate with you guys. Uh, I really like what you're doing. And I think what you're doing is great. And I would love an opportunity to talk. Uh, so we went back to the table. So you never know, too. You never know when a deal is, is dead or when it's alive or what's happening. So you know, I guess through that process, one, you know, raise when you have a great story. And two, um, don't forget the people that either had turned you down or that maybe weren't ready to invest at a current moment because there's a time and place for everything. And writing a check or handing somebody money uh, that is a high-risk, high-volatile business is a difficult thing. And so there's, there's always a place. And when you're ready, you'll start getting the money. You know, if you're not getting the money, you're not ready to, to receive the money. Yeah, and I think there's so many important pieces to, to your experience that you've just shared. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know we've talked about it previously, mm -hmm. but that, that Shark Tank was so much bigger than, for you personally and for your company, than just raising money. Mm -hmm. And I know um, starting all the way back with it not being your idea and recognizing right. that your partner came to you with something that you weren't comfortable with and that didn't cross your mind as something that you wanted to do and you were willing to take on the challenge, the personal challenge, the company challenge, and now 
kind of, uh, you know, looking in hindsight and, and recognizing all the value that it brought to the table. Um, so I think there's just so much that we can learn. Um, challenging yourself, the preparation that you guys put into it, clearly. Sure. Um, probably spent more time with each other right. <laughs> working on this than anything else of your, of your business. So I, I think there's tremendous learning that we can learn. And for all of us, we see, you know, the five-minute pitches. We don't really get to see the back end. So thanks, sure. thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course.